Hello and welcome. I'm Rebecca Weinberg from TNS Qualitative, and today we're going to talk about some of the interesting things that have come out of our study on the ideal man. The ideal man study looks at men and their cultures through six deep sociological lenses and is one of the many examples of cultural insight. It has been designed and led by Michael Griffiths and William Landall Mills, who have worked closely with our senior qualitative experts from across nine countries, the US, UK, China, India, Brazil, Germany, Italy, Japan, and Russia. The study is ongoing with other markets being completed in the next few months. Mike is in Shanghai, while William and I are talking to you from London today. Just to get us started, Mike, can you tell us a bit about what the Ideal Man study is and what it's for? The Ideal Man study is not a consumer-driven survey, although it is proving extremely valuable in helping brands in different countries understand their consumers. We don't ask consumers who their Ideal Man is. Rather, we conduct a more technical, semiotic analysis of the ways that different cultures construct the ideal the ways they represent the ideal through stories, films, advertisements, and other cultural narratives which illustrate what a man is expected to be like, what the idealized man is in each culture. When you say expected or idealized, can you explain that a little more? Yes. At the heart of our analysis, we have six core sociological lenses, six questions, if you like, each of which shines a different light on a specific aspect of a culture's ideal man. So we, we look at how the ideal man is situated in society, how he has to operate, what kind of knowledge or skills he values, how he navigates between the sacred and the profane, how his manliness is defined versus women, and how he behaves with other men. These questions and these modes of analysis derive from anthropology and sociology. And because societies answer these questions in very different ways, asking these questions as researchers helps us get to the heart of cultural differences in a deep rather than a superficial way. So, William, can you explain how do you actually do this? Sure. Well, in each country, we ask teams of cultural insiders and outsiders to examine how that society answers the six big questions. We watch films, ads, read history, draw on their extensive knowledge from all the local research they conduct, and from that develop hypotheses which we test out through discussion and debate. And as we do this, it becomes apparent that there are recurrent themes which tell us what the underlying cultural concerns and reflexes are. We then build this into an analysis which we sum up in a word or a phrase, which we call a code. Each market has six separate codes to answer the six questions. When taken together, these codes give us a distinctive sense about how the idea of man in that culture is unique. And we quickly found that these codes applied not just to men, but also how they want brands to talk to them. And you've recently co-authored an article on the ideal man where one of the questions you raised is about German men not wanting a Hollywood smile. What's that about? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a way of providing an example to help you know, bring the side to life a bit. A while back, we did some work on oral care and teeth whitening form part of that. Now, this, this work 
illustrated some of the differences between American and German men. And what was striking about it was that it touches on a whole raft of cultural distinctions between the two markets across lots of other categories too. What, what kind of things are you talking about? Most people who've ever been to America, especially if they're British, will be aware of how important it is to have a really even, bright set of pearly white teeth. I was really struck by this one American lady who said that she would, of course, never trust a politician who didn't have shiny, even white teeth. This struck me as odd because, as a Brit, my instinct is absolutely not to trust a politician or any salesman with perfect white teeth. I mean, if you're in the US, people will say, kind of, what horrific English, teeth the English have. I mean, it's one of those cliches. And from an outsider's point of view, it seems like having great teeth is something of a national obsession in America. Now, of course, if, you know, for Americans, that just feels like the norm. So a friend of mine told me how, when he, was, when he lived in New York, if your teeth weren't quite right, people would take you aside and tell you that really you ought to sort them out, like you had your flies open or something. And he would, I mean, he would just tell them he was English and that kind of ended the conversation. But you know, there is a sense that in the States, it's almost rude to have bad teeth. Okay, so, so you, you just think, you know, hey, that, that's how the Americans are. But when, you, when we got into these cultural codes um, and on the ideal man study, what struck us was that the core American code we came to is righteous purpose. And you can see that the thing about teeth is that they're a bit of your insides that can be seen from the outside. And actually, they're not just any old bit of your insides. They're the part of you that talks, you know, there's evidence of your nicotine stains, the coffee stains, the cavities from eating tea, bad mouth hygiene and so forth. So there's something about, says something about the real you. And when you think about this and you think of the wider importance of what we call righteous purpose in America, then it's not really too big a leap to start thinking that these great white teeth are in fact an expression of you as a good person, righteous, if you like. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that Colgate, which is, after all, an American brand, has its well-known ring of confidence for its logo, which actually looks like a halo. I mean, it's an implicit statement of the emotional benefit of using the product. And where does this righteous purpose come from? This righteous purpose that we ascribe to American cultures can be seen everywhere. In the mission of the Founding Fathers, in the Constitution and its importance, in the central role of law and freedom in America, the civil rights movement, in the American idea of individual personal responsibility and so forth. Just think of some of the most iconic American statements like Kennedy's ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for the country, or Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. These are all examples of righteous purpose. So going back to our original question, um, what is it about Germans not wanting the Hollywood mile? Well, this is where it gets really interesting, because when you talk to German people about teeth whitening products, they find them kind of weird or faintly ridiculous. And this makes sense to us in the context of our broader cultural understanding. Can you explain a little more? Well, uh, sure. The, the core German code is authentic and grounded. Right? And this comes from the German instinct to build things from the bottom up in a, in a solid way based on fundamental truths. And when we think about 
what that instinct means for how German people approach tea. Their overwhelming concern is not with the appearance of their teeth, but not that's of no interest them, but, but it's actually about their underlying health and, and the strength. So German people will quickly say that the natural state of being for teeth is not perfectly white, that enamel is in fact a bit yellow. So for them, good teeth are natural teeth, not necessarily visually perfect teeth. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that you can't sell teeth whitener in Germany. But if you know these facts about the cultural landscape, you won't sell teeth whitener there in the same way as you do in the US. Yes, that's right. And to draw the example out, if we were to look at teeth from a Chinese perspective, then we get to something really interesting. Because in China, the code we used to describe the ideal man's deepest fit with society was circumspect. We use that word because there's very little certainty in China, very little trust between strangers. And you take your position from people around you, not in isolation. And that position can shift the moment somebody, somebody new walks in the room. So in China, people need to be very careful about taking a stand on something and very careful not to find themselves exposed when, when things shift. So whereas in America, people will flash big friendly smiles at you, in China, it's not polite for a woman to show her teeth. She will put her hand in front of her mouth when she laughs. She is covering up in a sense, being circumspect. She won't allow her real self to show through her teeth because her instinct is to conceal. If she were to show her teeth, then this would demonstrate a lack of self-cultivation or self-control, as, as they understand. So William was talking about nature, and you always get the impression that the German people have a unique relationship with nature. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. Well, this goes back a long way. You know, for all of Germany's wonderful science and engineering, their intellectual tradition in Germany, has, has always tried to explain man's place in the world in terms of natural being. So today you can be walking around a park in Berlin and you will see groups of adults standing around and talking perfectly at ease, but all stark naked. And, it, and, and this nakedness really isn't considered a big deal and, and nobody's looking. So an interest in naturism is an example of German authenticity and groundedness. That's right. Naturism is legitimate in Germany because it's about being at ease with your essential self. It's a way of being authentic. And again, to contrast with the Americans, when Americans come on summer holiday to the Mediterranean, they simply can't believe that women sunbathe topless. But once you look at the ideal man codes and you think about America's righteous purpose, it's easy to see that taking your clothes off in public can't be part of that. The Americans are not necessarily prudish, but they certainly don't have anything like the German attitude to public nudity. And how else do you see this playing out? I think it's fair to say that in the US and in Germany, we see different approaches to nature in the ideological domain in terms of environmental issues, for example. William? Well, exactly. Um, I mean, Germans pretty much invented environmentalism as a political force. I mean, they have far the largest uh, Green Party in the world, and really being green is part of the mainstream there. I mean, Germany just closed down all its nuclear power plants, despite having to now import energy to make up the gap. Right. And while the environmental debate is moving quickly in the US, and environmentalism is on the rise, it's not as mainstream as it is in Germany. 
Now, you know, clearly, you know, all that can change. But what, what you might predict here is that as the environmental movement develops in the States, it will start to express itself more fully in terms of the US core code, more along the lines of ask not what your environment can do for you. I mean, I'm kidding there, but you get the idea. Sure. Are there any other places you can find this difference in the way these two cultures think about nature? I'm wondering what about food? Absolutely. If you look at simple things like bread and cheese, you will find them very differently imagined in Germany versus the US. If we think about German bread, for example, artisan whole grain loaves in endless shapes and varieties come to mind. And we also think of Germans' resistance to factory farming and to GM foods. Now, you can find all those things in the U.S. too, but these things seem much more niche in the U.S., alternatives to the mainstream rather than the mainstream itself. In America, the way that bread is made is just less important. What really matters is the purpose that bread is put to. Bread doesn't have any higher purpose beyond being eaten in America, so Americans don't obsess about the baking process. Okay, it seems we've strayed quite a long way from the teeth. Let's try and pull this all together. In a way, what you're saying is pretty impressive, possibly even slightly outrageous, that you can connect naked German people with how they choose their toothpaste and what flavour of electricity and bread they want. Yes, I think we can. It's quite shocking, but human behaviour is motivated by deep cultural currents which shape how we respond to reality. It's challenging because we like to believe in human universals, things like universal human rights and other absolute values. But the evidence of cultural difference is all around us, and ignoring those differences doesn't make them go away. I mean, everyone is aware of national stereotypes, and you know, often we find them distasteful and want to avoid them. If we accept that stereotypes have their origins in something fundamentally true and meaningful, and we really understand what drives these, it can be extremely helpful in driving success for brands in different markets. Thank you both very much. We've focused on Germany and the US in this first podcast, but we'll be talking about the ideal man in other markets in our future podcasts. In the meantime, if anyone would like to find out more about this work, they can contact Mike or William by emailing idealman at tnsglobal.com. Many thanks. Thank you.